Welcome to this Thursday's broadcast of KMTT, the Torah podcast. Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah. And this is Ezubik. And today is Thursday, Chaf Gimel Adar. And today's shir is on Pashat Shavuah and will be given by Harav Alex Israel. In our parashiyot this week, we leave behind the dramatic events of the Egel Hazahav, the Golden Calf. We emerge from the tumultuous smashing of the Luchot and the renewal of the covenant with the Luchot Hashnim that we experienced in last week's Kriyat HaTorah. And now with the parashiyot of Mayakel and Pikudei, we return to the theme of the Mishkan. Once again, our parasha is filled with precise dimensions, architectural details, fabrics, gold, silver, raw materials, the shapes and textures of every item in the Mishkan fill the lines of the Parsha. Now, any reader of the Torah is confronted by an obvious question as they read these Parshiyot. And that question relates to the repetitive nature of these Parshiyot. And we all find ourselves asking, haven't we read this before? Haven't we heard this before? After all, the Torah in Truma and Tzaveh has already listed in, in exacting detail uh, all the instructions for building the Mishkan with, with very precise measurements and the exact descriptions of materials. Um, we've already heard about the Aron and the Menorah and the Shulchan. And now, in Vayakha we read it all again, a point-for-point point repetition of all that detail. Could the Torah not simply have told us that Moshe followed the instructions and, and we could be finished? In fact, there's a pasuk in the parasha, in parasha Pikudei, which sounds exactly like that. It says right at the end of Perak Lamatet, chapter 39, it says, uh, that Moshe did everything as he was told. And uh, it was precisely how God had commanded. So why not have this line, and then we don't need to have the whole of Parshat Vayakal Pikude. We don't need to repeat the whole thing. Why the tedious repetition, verse after verse, chapter after chapter? Um, indeed, this this question actually relates to two things. Number one, it relates to the question of why we need uh, the parashiyot again, but it also relates to the very question of repetition in the Torah. And here at this point, let me maybe point something out that maybe we're not aware enough about. Um, we are very familiar with the principle that says that the Torah never wastes words, that every single letter is precious and precisely decided upon and and placed in the Torah. But in truth, we should realize that the Torah frequently enjoys listing things in an enormously repetitive fashion. Throughout the Torah, we have lists which repeat again and again the same details, very wordy lists. I'll give a few examples. Bereshit chapter 5. We have a list of genealogies which repeat the ne- which list the names of the generations Adam to Noach. Now they go through the words, and instead of just giving a simple list, they tell us 
a, a whole series of, 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 of details in a sort of repetitive fashion. Um, this repeats throughout many, many genealogies that we have in Breshit. We have the list of Esav's army generals in Breshit chapter Lamad Vav, which again is heavy in seemingly insignificant detail. Earlier in Bereshit, we had the search for a wife for Yitzchak, where the slave who goes to look for the wife for Rivka repeats again and again the story, time and time again. If we look at another sefer, in Sefer Bamidbar, the census of Bnei Israel um, is described twice. The, the gifts of the Nasiim, the princes of the tribes to the Mishkan, is repeated the same text twelve times. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that the Torah sometimes seems to be unconcerned with the tedium of repetitive language, listing, and in fact we could argue that there actually is a literary technique, a literary phenomenon in the Torah. Uh, One of the hallmarks of the Torah might well be repetition. Um, Some literary scholars, uh, academics, have actually noted this. In fact, I found in one a book, in Robert Alter's book, uh, The Art of Biblical Narrative, where he talks about, and I, I'm quoting him, he says, there is an oriental sense of the intrinsic pleasingness of repetition in the underlying aesthetic of the Bible. In other words, he says there's something about the ancient style of writing that enjoys repetition. And I, I do think that there is something to this, because we frequently find uh, lists and we frequently find repetition, and the Torah seems uh, somewhat unbothered by this. That's one side of the coin regarding repetition, but there is another side, because Chazal were unsatisfied with these uh, literary resolutions. After all, Torah is Chayim. Torah is the word of God. And in halachic texts, we derive binding halachic details from an extra phrase, from an added word, from an unusual suffix, a prefix. And if we do that in halacha, we would certainly expect the Torah to have a sort of uniform attitude to language, to to retain a similar economy of language when it's dealing with other things, with narrative sections. And indeed, Chazal uh, tried to deal with this. In Bereshit Rabbah, um, there is a statement of Rav Acha where he says, Clearly, he says, the, even the slaves of, of the Avot, of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the slaves' language is even dearer than the very Torah of the children of Abraham. And he says, why? Why do I say that? Ravacha says, because parashato shel Eliezer shnayim v'shloshata pimhu hu omra v'shona. He says, Eliezer's story stretches for two or three columns in the Torah. He says it and repeats it. But then there are various halachot, for example, the halacha of sheretz, which comes to do with the laws of purity and impurity, where he says, we only learn this from a riboy hamikra, we learn this from a derivation of the text. In other words, he says, if there is repetition, the repetition comes to tell us that something is important. It is not just stylistic, 
The repetition is there to show us that there is some importance, that there is some significance in the content. Um, that's going to be our approach today, that we're not just talking about the repetitive nature of Ayaka Bikure, and we're not chalking it up to simple literary stylistics. And again, as I said, I do think there is something in that, but we're going to try and understand the repetition of Ayaka Bikure uh, on a different dimension. We're going to try and understand the secret behind this. Um, now at this stage, let me maybe mention something further which relates to repetition, and then we'll move on to the structure of Shemot. And here I'm going to say an idea that I once heard from my teacher, Rav David Nativ, and it's worthwhile uh, saying here. David Nativ once pointed out in one of his shiurim that uh, there are certain times when the Torah is very brief, and there are certain times when the Torah is very wordy. And he claimed that, uh, and again, this doesn't work for every situation, but it's certainly a thought-provoking theory. He says, in an area in which the non-Jewish nations had no parallel to Judaism, the Torah states things very succinctly. Non-Jewish nations didn't have Sukkot, so the Torah says, Basukot yamim, sit in a Sukkot for seven days, and we'll figure out all the details through Torah Shabbat Um The non-Jewish nations didn't have Shatnas, so it says, uh, keep Shatnas, and and we'll figure out the rest through Torah Shabbat or certain minimal details are given. However, there are certain areas particularly related to temples and to sacrifices which other nations do have. And the worry is that unless the details are spelled out word for word, every minutia, every single tiny, minuscule detail, the worry is that we will slip into the modes of the nations around us. That when we hear the word temple, we, we, we already think and imagine in our minds temples that we've seen. Or when we think sacrifices, we think about the Egyptian sacrifices or Canaanite sacrifices. Hence, in order to create a different reality, when it comes to Korbanot, when it comes to the Mishkan, the Torah needs to spell things out again and again and again to resist the pollution, the cultural pollution of the surrounding environment. And this is, is, is relegated to situations in which there is a, a danger of that uh, osmosis from other societies. However, in areas which are uniquely Jewish, where there is no parallel, we don't need to go to that detail. And that's a very interesting theory which might go to explain why we have every single centimeter taken care of, the fabrics, everything specified, nothing left to imagination, because the worry is if it's left to imagination, it might be susceptible to imitation. So what we've tried to do until now in this shiur is to relate to the uh, question of the detailed language and the repetitive nature of Ayaka Pikude, um, and why it repeats what has been said in Truma Tetzaveh. However, what I would like to do is deal with this in a wider context by understanding uh, the structure of the latter half of Sefer Shemot and putting it in a certain perspective. Let's again remind ourselves, when we're thinking about Sefer Shemot, in broad terms, it works like this. Parshat Truma and Tetzabe deal with the instruction to build a Mishkan 
with all of the kilim, all of the items in the Mishkan, and the bigdei kuhuna, the clothes of the priests, etc., etc. That is followed by Parashat Kitisa, which is the story of the golden calf and the aftermath, and the recovery from the golden calf, including uh, the second tablets of stone. Followed by that we have Vayakal Pikude, which returns to the Mishkan with all its detail. In other words, we have a sort of symmetrical or chiastic structure. Mishkan, Egel, Mishkan. Okay, we start with the Mishkan, then we move to the Egel, and then we move to the Mishkan. I guess what I'm saying is, this is not simply repetition, but maybe there's a story here which takes us from the Mishkan to the Egel and back to the Mishkan. Indeed, this is the theory of the Ramban. The Ramban, Nachmanides, says that the order of Sefer Shemot, Mishkan, Egel, Mishkan, represents the historical flow of events. Prior to the Egel, prior to the golden calf, when Moshe Rabbeinu spent 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai with Hashem, what was God telling him? So maybe God told him a lot of things, but one of the things that God told him was the construction of the Mishkan, and God transmitted all the details. And then Moshe comes down Mount Sinai, and he's about to transmit the Mishkan concept to Bnei Israel. but he comes down, and there's the whole debacle of the disaster of the Egel, and the whole plan to transmit the Mishkan is, is thwarted, it is interrupted. Now, Vayachal Kude. Um, we get a respite from the Egel, the Egel is solved, the Egel is behind us. Now we go back to uh, the Mishkan, and now we collect the materials, and we construct the furniture, and we, um, it is designed, it is assembled, and Sefer Shemot is completed with actually the setting up of the Mishkan. Um, our question still stands. In other words, what I've said so far is that Ramban says, Mishkan, Egel, Mishkan is the way things happen. Truman Tetzaveh represents God's instruction to Moses. But then the Egel interrupted everything. Vayakal Pikure represents the people fulfilling the instruction that had been given before the Egel. But once again, it still doesn't explain all the detail. The Ramban uses a very, very interesting phrase when he talks about this theory. I'll read some of his lines. He says, um, When God forgave the people after the golden calf, and he gave the second tablets of stone, and he made a new covenant that God would walk in their midst. Now they go back to their original state, the Kadmutam, and to the love of the days of their marriage. What exactly does this phrase mean, Ahavat Klulatam? It's clearly a quote from the prophet Jeremiah, Ahavat Klulotaich, but what does it refer to? And how might this solve our problem? Rav Lichtenstein once gave a very interesting parable to explain this. Listen to the following story. You have a couple, a young man and woman who are, who are in love, and they decide to get married. They're engaged and they're setting up their new house together. And what do they do? They go to the department store to go and furnish their house. 
they walk through the store looking at all the different things they look at the couches they look at the furniture and they debate the fabrics and colors that they want the woods the styles all the different things they look through the the plates and cups and the tableware and they choose this and they choose that and they're they're filled with excitement about their new home and they giggle and they smile and they're, they're delighted. In short, they, they, they set up their entire home together. And when they finish making an entire list of what they need, they go to the store assistant and they register everything. And they talk to the store assistant and said, well, when can you bring it? He says, oh, in a few weeks' time, we, they arrange a date and everything's great. And the couple get married a week later. And... Uh, Everything's wonderful, they love each other, they look and gaze into each other's eyes, it's all fantastic. And off they go on their honeymoon. Now on their honeymoon, disaster strikes. For some strange reason that nobody will ever understand, something happens on the honeymoon that makes one of them betray the relationship. One of them has an affair. Who can imagine such a thing? Now, the couple decide that they'll stay together despite this awful slip-up, this awful betrayal. And they say they're going to stay together and they're going to sort things out. But of course, the love, the sense of togetherness, well, it's not the same, is it? They fly back from their vacation, from their honeymoon, and they're not gazing into each other's eyes. There's a heavy feeling between them. There's tension. It's, it's, they've got a lot to work through. Uh, what they thought was so light before and happy now isn't that way and as they come back home from the airport who's there to meet them well there's a big van from the department store with all of their all of their furniture with the tableware with the cups and you know along comes the assistant from the from the shop and says look it's it's the fabric i got exactly the right fabric and the right wood i got exactly the right style of plate and the right knives that you ordered the curtains are perfectly matching and the couple look at each other and who cares it doesn't matter anymore they were the giggling and the, the the loving gazes in the in, in the store have now been replaced by a spirit of an atmosphere of acrimony and distance that is the reality of, of human relationships that once there is a betrayal it is very very difficult to repair and it will take time the Ramban says that the reason why everything is reported word for word, everything is repeated word for word, is because they've gone right back to the beginning. Because the first instance of the Mishkan in Truman Tetzaveh represented the love, the love of Matan Torah, the love of God and Bnei Israel being together except that we betrayed the relationship with the Egel. We betrayed it when we worshipped Avodah Zarah. When we danced around the Egel, we broke the marriage. And you'd think that this would be irreparable. You'd think that the relationship would be irretrievable, that there would be no way to repair, that there would always be the stain, the scar. Along comes Oyakal Pikude, and it repeats everything word for word. No, the fabrics are the same. The wood is the same. The gold and silver is the same. Everything is as if it, the crisis never was. The love, the looks, the gazing, the romance, the close relationship between God and Israel has been repaired. And therefore for the Ramban, not only is this a historical explanation, first the Mishkan, then the Egel, 
followed by a return to the Mishkan. This also represents a um, sign that the relationship has been repaired. So that's the opinion of the Rambam. Rashi, the famous commentator, cannot agree with this approach. And let me explain why. Rashi has an opinion. Um, well, first of all, we know that Rashi doesn't follow the principle of chronology in the Torah. He says, Ein mukdam Torah. The Torah is not in historical order. And according to Rashi, um, the entire instruction of the Mishkan takes place only after the episode of the Egel. He says that only once the Egel was totally finished did Bnei Israel even receive the instruction of the Mishkan. Um, and so he can't claim that the Mishkan existed before and then was somehow interrupted and now can be repaired. So what is the role of the Mishkan according to Rashi? According to Rashi, Rashi bases himself uh, on a Medrash Tanchuma, and I'm going to read the Medrash Tanchuma to you. Rashi suggests that the entire Mishkan is actually a response to uh, a sense of repair, a tikkun for the faults of the Egel. Here's the Tanchuma. Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God said, Yavo zahav sheba Mishkan v'yichaper al hazahav shina asabo ha'egel. Let the gold of the Mishkan come to atone for the gold of the Egel. For Rashi, um, the Mishkan comes as a means of atonement, as a means of repair for the awful sin of the golden calf. And in fact, in the text, we can find a number of ways in which this manifests itself. The first one mentioned by the Tanchuma is the gold. In the golden calf, the people bring uh, gold to build the calf. And in the Mishkan, they also bring gold. In fact, in our parasha, we read in Perak Lamadvav, Pasuk He, that the people are so enthusiastic to build for the Mishkan, to bring their gold to the Mishkan, that the craftsman said, they're bringing too much. They've brought too much. We don't need so much gold. And Moshe has to make a pronouncement. He has to make a pronouncement in the camp saying, Stop bringing things. The enthusiasm of the people for the Mishkan is in a sense their attempt to atone for the Ega. Likewise, Aharon, Aharon, Moshe's brother, who led the people to the Egel, now leads the people in the Mishkan. This is meant to be some sense of kapara, some sense of tikkun. Moreover, if you look through Parshat Pikudeh, you will see that at the end of every single paragraph in Parshat Pikudeh, there is a refrain, a repeated phrase, which comes up. And that phrase is is that they did whatever they did, Ka'asher Siva Hashem et Moshe, exactly like Moshe had commanded from God. In other words, the stress is you made the Egel not according to God. Now follow God in every detail. It's interesting, our parsha is called Vayakhel, and the people gathered. The last time the people that, that word Vayakhel is used in Sefer Shemot is in the story of the Egel, where it says, and say, In other words, they gathered to meet Egel, now Moshe, Moshe gathers them to talk about the Mishkan. 
Let me summarize. For the Ramban, the repetition of the parshiot of the Mishkan in their full detail is a verification. It's a Giloi Milta. It tells us that everything is forgiven and forgotten, that the relationship is restored, that the Shekhinah has returned to Am Yisrael. The process of repair from the Egel took place in Parshat Kitisa, but now Vayachlo Pikure is the evidence of the, the restoration of relationship. It is, in a sense, the continuation, the, the resuming of the relationship. Rashi, though, sees things differently. Rashi says that the process of the Mishkan, the process of the Mishkan is the very process of repair. By building the Mishkan, the people channel the energies which were used for the negative purpose of the Egel, for the sin of the Egel, and now they channel it to positive goals, to holy goals. So here we see two approaches as how we're meant to see the Mishkan and how we're meant to see the book as a whole. Now here I'd like to move to a further theme which relates to um, which relates to this notion of Mishkan as regards the Egel. Because um, maybe we should pay attention to the final lines of Parsha Pikudeh. At the end of Parsha Pikudeh, we have some exceptional lines which tell us that God's presence in the Mishkan is so powerful that even Moses cannot enter. Moshe is not allowed to enter the Mishkan because... The Mishkan is filled with the presence of God. I would like to explain why this is so momentous, why this is so significant. The word Mishkan um, comes from the word Shachain. When we make a Mishkan, we are asking God to be our Shachain, our neighbor. When we make a a Mishkan, God is moving into the Shechuna, to the neighborhood. The idea of Shechina is about God's being associated with us. At Har Sinai, we encamped around the mountain. God was at our center. Vayichan Yisrael Negadahar, Am Yisrael surrounded God and God was in our midst. And yet, after this, once we sin with the Egel, the Torah tells us that Moshe yikachet ohel. Moshe took a tent, v'natalo michutz lamachane, and he pitched it outside the tent, the camp, harachek minamachane, very distant from the camp. V'kara lo ohel moed, he called it the tent of meeting. V'haya kol mabakesh Hashem yitzay el ohel moed. Anybody who wanted to talk to God would go out to this tent to meet with God. God physically moves away from Ben Israel and moves outside the camp. Is God ever going to return? God was in our centre at Har Sinai, we were so close. Is God going to return to the centre of the camp? After the Egel, he moves out, he moves way distant. And we spend six months building a Mishkan, constructing all the crafted vessels, all the garments of the Kohen Gadol, in the final lines of our parsha, God comes back. As it says at the end of Pikudei, and on the day the Mishkan was set up, the cloud covered the Mishkan. 
and at evening in the Mishkan there was the appearance of fire until the morning. Kavod Hashem Mishkan. The crescendo in the end of Parashat Pikudei is that God has come back. I think this is enormously significant because our Sefer, Sefer Shemot as a whole, talks about the notion not only of freedom from slavery, but the notion of building a relationship with God. We receive a Torah which tells us how to live as Jews. And then we're told, If you make a Migdash, says God, I will live together with you. I will live as your neighbor. What's amazing is, is that as we are yearning for God's closeness, as God offers us the tempting uh, suggestion that he will become our neighbor, we slip up. He gives us an instruction to build a Mishkan, but so soon we mess up and we sin. And we reject God and God moves far away. And yet the message of Sefer Shemot is that we get a second chance. We get a chance to rebuild. Vayakel Pikudet says that the offer of Truman Tetzava, the offer to rebuild the Mishkan, even though we slipped up, is still there. The Aaron is still there. The Shulchan is still there. The Menorah is still there. The Mizbeach HaZahav is still there. Everything is still there. The opportunity is still available. In other words, the repetition of Vayakel Pikudet tells us but even though in spirituality, even though in Torah Mitzvot we make mistakes, nonetheless, there is the opportunity of tshuva. And maybe this is one of the most important spiritual messages of Sefer Shemot. We all yearn for closeness with the Almighty. We all yearn for a sense of relationship. However, unfortunately, there are times when we don't manage to live up to our own standards, to our own expectations. And we betray the relationship. Sefer Shemot tells us that the opportunity doesn't go away. Even though we mess up, we can rebuild. We can build the same menorah, the same shulchan. And then indeed, God will come and join us. God's presence will come, cloud and fire, in our midst. If only we take the effort to repair, detail by detail, garment by garment, fabric by fabric. And then we will indeed be able to read the words with true meaning, we will have built the Migdash, and God will indeed be within our midst. Wishing everybody a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Pashat HaShavuah by Harav Alex Israel. Today's Halacha Yomit concerns a a halacha, which I think is is quite common. In other words, it's quite common that people don't exactly follow it. It is sometimes difficult in a crowded shul, but I suspect that mostly it's because people don't know the halacha. The Shulchan Aruch Paskins, based on the Gemara, the Gemara Daf Chavzayin Amad Aleph in Brachot, Asur La'avor Keneged HaMitpadalim Betoch Arba Amot. It's prohibited, it's forbidden to pass, meaning to walk, to move in front of someone who's davening. Technically that means davening Shemar Esrei. You're now allowed to walk in front of him within four amot. Four amot is two meters, uh, six, six feet, six, six feet, six inches.
in front of him. But on the side, it is, it is permissible. The way most poskim understand this halacha is that you are disturbing his kavanah if you pass directly in front of him. Somehow he senses your presence, even if his eyes are closed, surely if his eyes are open. And therefore it's forbidden, it's forbidden to do so. That's the, that's the majority opinion in understanding this halacha. Many poskim, including the Mishnah Bura and the Magan Avram and the Gra, uh, cite the Zohar, who is more machmir than the simple explanation of the Gemara. The Sefer Zohar says you're not allowed to pass in front of someone davening even outside of Dawad Amat. And it also, apparently it's forbidden even, if, even on the sides. So it's not lahalacha. In general speaking, the rule of the poskim is that where the poskim, where the halacha, disagrees with what's found in the Zohar, we should follow the halacha. But uh, nonetheless, it is cited by many achronim. So at least lahalacha, one is not allowed to walk directly in front of someone davening within six feet of his, of, his, of his presence. This applies not only where someone's davening, you walk right in front of him, which is also, uh, I think, happens. But one uh, application of this, which is quite common, that if we're all davening and I finish, and I'm standing in front of you, and I finish before you, I'm not permitted to take the three steps backwards that one normally takes at the end of davening. If I'm within four amot of you, or when I finish walking, I will be within four amot of you. But I have to wait until you finish, and you take your three steps back, and then I take my three steps back. And this is true even if the chazan is is, is saying tusha, you can you can answer tusha even though you haven't taken the three steps back instead of shalom. But one is not permitted to take these three steps back because that's considered to be passing in front of someone else who's davening. We have to respect. Other people's davening, even if they're davening very long and much longer, and much longer and much longer than us. This is true. Even if when you started davening, he wasn't there. He started davening after you. But since you're moving, he didn't. He didn't merely come and come next to you. You're moving, and he's davening. So even though you were the first and he came second, when you finished davening, you have to wait. Sometimes you can see this. Sometimes in shul, people know the salacha, and people are standing one in front of the other, and in effect, the person at the end of the line. He holds up them all. So first he goes back, then the person in front of him goes back, and the person in front of him, like a domino effect until he get up to the front. But that's in fact what the halacha is, and it's an important halacha, not only because of the, uh, the halacha that one should have kavanah, but what's implicit here is that one has to respect other people's kavanah. And I think it's especially important halacha when we're davening. Obviously, you should respect other people, and and the We should help other people all the time. But it's, I think it's 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 extremely important that when I'm davening, I'm speaking to God and asking things for myself. That I not even in the slightest way trample on someone else's ability to speak to God, because it directly impugns, it directly I think interferes with my relationship with God if I try to make it a selfish one, and therefore. This is one, one uh, expression. There are other halachot based on the same thing. You know, how to sit down next to someone who's davening. Uh, we have to respect other people's space, so to speak, when they're davening, and to maximize their intimate relationship with God, even when we're all davening together. So again, this is a halacha psukah. Same time, the shul is crowded. You come a little bit late. Another, another application is if you come late to davening, the people davening near the door. You come to the Beit Midrash, people have, a lot of people have come late, all davening next to the door. And you want to get in. You want to daven. You want to daven b'tzibur. But if you directly pass in front of somebody, so the lacha says you don't do it. 
you don't pass in front of someone who's already davening, you have to stay outside, and it might even cause you to miss tefillah b'tzibur, but that's not a good enough reason to uh, interfere with his, with his tefillah. And that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the Arab Shabbat program. My guest tomorrow on the Arab Shabbat program will be Harav Moshe Taragin from Shivat Haritzion. And until then, wishing you Bekata Torah Mitzion. You have been listening to KMTT, the Torah podcast. Ki Mitzion Teitzei Torah Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim.